Thanks for joining us on Stand Strong in the Word podcast with author, speaker, and worldview expert, Jason Jimenez. Stand Strong in the Word podcast is devoted to walking listeners through the Bible in a fresh and powerful way. We pray your spirit is nourished as you gain new perspectives and a renewed appreciation for God's Word. Now, here's Jason Jimenez. Well, hello, my friend. Welcome to Stand Strong in the Word podcast. Jason Jimenez with you. I'm so glad that you're tuning in once again. You know, listen, if you've missed any of the previous podcasts, go to standstrongministries.org, click on podcast. There's a SoundCloud. There's kind of a brief description of each podcast. And always, we post our notes up there. So we just continue to encourage you. I was talking to somebody recently when now they're going through our teachings through the Gospels as their personal study and using the notes. So greatly appreciate that. I'm glad to hear that, that it's ministering to a lot of you. So continue to do that, my friends, because that's why I do this, you know, through our ministry is to just get the Bible open, you know, open the Bible, get it out there and to an audience of people that I may know or I don't know. So just continue to pass the word along with that. Now, today is pretty exciting because we're going to be parking in John 5 in our continual study. So in podcast 26, the title was Hanging Out with Losers. Okay. So that one was really centered on the call of Matthew, the tax collector, because again, as we're doing the chronological teaching, what happened after the call of Matthew was that evening, Matthew had invited Jesus to his home with other sinners, other tax collectors. And of course, the religious leaders and the scribes were there, were told in various different passages, particularly in the Synoptic Gospels, they were just astounded that Jesus was doing that. And if you remember, if you recall, in our chronological teaching, they were already pointing pointing out to Jesus that you guys don't purify yourself the way that you are supposed to according to the law. So there's just this ongoing battle between Jesus, of course, and the religious leaders. And we already know, right, basically in the start of his ministry that they were seeking ways to not just condemn him, but to kill him. And we're going to see that progress in John chapter 5. So bear with me. I'm going to read this entire chapter of John chapter 5. So just hear the word of God as it speaks. May it just penetrate you and just almost as I'm reading this, try to imagine uh, as we're going to be introduced to a paralyzed man, try to imagine what that's like. So here we go in John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. It says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic that is called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. And these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up and while I'm going another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up. Take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and he said to him, See, you are well. 
sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away, and he told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For the father loves the son, and he shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will be shown him, so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son, just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I received is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? And do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? 
Amen. So that is John 5, verses 1 through 46. And so the title is The Scriptures Testify of Jesus Christ. So let's break this thing down. A lot to cover. Again, because of time limits, we can't, you know, dissect everything. But let me just say this. This is a great passage I just read to use to show people in Scripture, particularly in this this very, very packed field. I mean, just this is just glorious. Up to this point, we have not seen Jesus break it down like this. This is a very long response to the Jewish leaders, okay? As you could tell. So let's let's just look at a, a few things here. Number one in verse one, if you notice, uh, it says that it was a feast of the Jews. Now, again, Jesus, and we're looking in the context chronologically, had went from Capernaum, okay, to Jerusalem, to the Bible says here in John 5, 1, to, to attend the feast of the Jews. Now, we don't know for certain what feast this was, but more than likely, I, I tend to believe this as well in most commentaries, that this is the Passover. You can see this in John 2, 23, John 6, 4 that we'll be talking about pretty soon, as well as John eleven fifty five. Now, another thing to note is the pilgrimage feasts, which is the Passover weeks and tabernacles, require that all observant Jewish men travel to Jerusalem on these feasts, okay? So we think right here in verse 1, we're told that Jesus, again, is going. He's going to Jerusalem to attend a feast. More likely, it's the Passover. Now, notice, as he travels there, there's this pool of Bethesda, and in Aramaic, it means the house of grace. Now, let's pause for a minute. Let me just kind of break this down. Usually, when you're looking at things contextually speaking, right, and you're doing proper hermeneutics, and you're and we're wondering, again, just kind of the layout where he's going, what time frame we're dealing with. This is about 80, you know, 30, 80, 33. And you're kind of looking at his Galilean ministry already and saying, is this really the Passover? Another reason why I do think it is the Passover because of the connection to Bethesda, because it means house of grace. And you and I know the Passover, when you go back to Exodus, is all about grace. The people can, should have been just condemned but because of the shed blood and putting on the doorpost, we know that the Spirit passed over them, and that's grace. And I think that Jesus, who, because we're going to see, as I just read in John 5, he's breaking it down that he is equal to the Father. He is the Messiah. He is the one to come to lay down his life for the forgiveness of sin, which is all about grace. And so here he goes to the Sheep Gate, which was near the temple complex on the northern side. Now, this was a section that was rebuilt during the time of Nehemiah, which again, when you look at the story of Nehemiah, is an is an impressive part of his, part part you know part of history of the Jews, and so this picture, uh, you know, is one of grace. Why Jesus was even there in the first place, as he's there to observe the Passover. Now, on my notes, I have a picture of what these porticos look like. So, if you go on my notes, if you check on my notes, you'll see that. But these porticos, they were covered like walkways for people to lounge and lay there so to be out of the sun, like a big patio, if you will, okay? Now, if you look at verses 3 through 9, we are told that there was a lot of people who were gathered there, 
and would be placed there that were sick, that were there to be healed. Now, I do want to make mention, though, that is most of the manuscripts omit verses 3 and 4, which is why most translations don't have them. But verse 3 does shed some light. And I want to just, you know, read that again so we kind of remember, since such a long passage, let me read verses 3 through 4 again. It says, In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now I'm reading from the ESV, and they omit verse 4. But in verse 7, it says, The sick man answered him, Sir, you know, when he tries to get to the pool, someone goes before him when it's stirred up. So it kind of gives us insight as to what is happening here. Doesn't explain the condition necessarily, um, you know, in great details why this man's an invalid, but it does describe how the water is stirred up and that he can't get there in time because someone obviously steps in front of him. And again, we don't even know the conditions there. Why Why didn't this man have someone who's there to to prevent that from happening? You know, and kind of like, hey, you were, you were in line first. He's been here for 38 years, we're told. Now, John doesn't mention much about the invalid beyond this, but you have to wonder, why did he continue to go there? And then by the time Jesus shows up, the man's like, I try. Of course, he's an invalid. He's paralyzed. What can he do? So who brought him there? And then who wasn't, and why weren't there people helping him? But, the, but, but beyond that, we don't know. It's speculative. But, but you have to just pause and think, my friends. This invalid, despite what was going on, has to have remained hopeful. Otherwise, why would he be there? I believe, again, we can just skim over this and move on, but I believe right here, again, John doesn't mention much afterwards, but man, this invalid displayed, I believe, extraordinary faith to be healed. If you and I, again, in chronological order, go back to recent events, remember Jesus had healed a leper in Mark 1, 40 through 45, and a paralytic in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And now here, Jesus purposefully goes to Bethesda, to heal an invalid. Now let's jump to verses 10 through 12. Since it was the Sabbath, remember, again, this is something we've been already seeing very early on in Jesus' ministry. The religious leaders really targeted in on this. There was no work that was, was to be completed, right? Now the healed man carried his bed because Jesus told him on the Sabbath that, you know, hey, you're going to be healed. Got his stuff, took off. That's considered work. And therefore, was breaking the law. And again, here are those great guys, the scribes, who had nearly 40 tasks that they put together that were not to be done on the Sabbath. So again, they were looking at their checklist. And they're checking off another thing that Jesus has done on the Sabbath and causing other people who were to obey them, the religious leaders, to break something. Now, carrying an object was forbidden. So the religious leaders weren't excited that this invalid, after 38 years, was healed. They saw this as an act of violation of the law. And then Jesus once again broke the law, despite the fact he was there as a Jewish man observing the Passover, the pilgrimage feast, they wanted to condemn him once again. Now we look at this encounter in John 5, verses 13 through 18 of this man who's now been healed encounters Jesus at the temple. Now, once again, Jesus is engaging people, people who were rejected, neglected by society I can't stress that enough. The conditions of these people, they were hopeless and certainly difficult for people to manage, no question. Through the years, I've talked to a lot of families who've had to bear the scruples. They've had to bear the diseases and the illnesses 
uh, of so many of their loved ones. And it's draining. They love, of course, their children and their spouses. Uh, and you've seen many of them pass away. But man, just it's just so tender to see the care, the love, the dedication, the sacrifice that so many people are willing um, to to offer their loved ones. And so Jesus is there to offer that. And he, of course, as God, has the power to heal. Now, based on the text, remember what's insightful here is we are told that the man did not know who Jesus was. Remember, he was healed and he left. So when the religious leaders encountered him, he didn't know who had done this. But then he encounters Jesus in the temple. Now, the healed man... He was at the temple to offer a sacrifice for his healing. So I love the fact that he responds, though he doesn't know Jesus that well. He knows the law, and he goes to obey it. And remember, he can do it in his own volition, not just mentally, but physically. He's able to go there and to do that. But nothing at this point directly confirms that, again, he was a believer, Jesus as the Messiah, like we see in the blind man in John chapter 9. But Jews here were persecuting Jesus. Jesus had already cast out a demon on the Sabbath in Luke 4, 31 through 37, and now he heals an invalid on the Sabbath. Now, this word persecute that we're told here means to expel. So the leaders were determined to rid themselves of Jesus completely. Now, I want to just show, share with you just comment here real quickly because it really breaks down and kind of puts things in perspective as we're building on this, on this fantastic, this wonderful ministry of Jesus. In addition to the case of the invalid's healing, here in John 5. John later records the the cure of a blind man on the Sabbath in John 9, the grain picking in Mark chapter 2, the healing of the shriveled hand in Mark 3, curing a woman who had been crippled for 18 years in Luke 13, and healing a man with dropsy in Luke 14, 1 through 6. All of these took place, guess what, on the Sabbath. So this was something that Jesus did, I think, intentionally. And they were so focused on that, so legalistic, that they missed the big picture. They missed the human side. They missed the love, the grace, the mercy. Now in verse 17, it says, my father's working until now and I am working. So Jesus pointed out saying, this is what I've been called to do. Part of what I've been called to do is to come to this hopeless generation, to heal them, to encounter them, to love them. Jesus responds by first noting that God is not their father. Man, that's huge because they had made a religion that is not acceptable to him. Pause and think about that, my friend. How many things do we do currently, even in the church, that does not honor the Father? Then Jesus reminds them that although they rest on the Sabbath, the Lord is always working in His creation. You see, no law, my friend, can prevent or stop God from working. We can try to limit God's power. That's impossible. You can't do that. Verse 18, I want to read it again. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, not just now to expel him, but to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So this is an amazing commentary by John here. He offers up an explanation of the intolerance the Jews had of Jesus, as well as their intention to murder him. That is how evil and wicked these men were. Not only that, but gives reasons as to why. He was a Sabbath breaker, and now he's blaspheming the name of God because he's claiming himself to be God. So now let's look at these declarative statements that God makes of him being God in in verses 19 through 46. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this is an extraordinary chronological um, passage that we're looking at, but it's also a very extraordinary Christological passage of Jesus laying out his heavenly origin and authority to the religious leaders. The language that Jesus uses to defend his deity is very rabbinic. 
meaning the Jewish leaders knew exactly what he was saying. Okay, so let's look at some of these statements. In verse 19, Jesus said, the son can do nothing of his own accord. See, Jesus declares his sonship to God. He cannot act separately from the father because they are one. There is no independent volition that Christ has apart from the Trinity. There is no rivalry between the three and the Godhead. Though the roles of each person in the Trinity is distinct, they are not restrictive. Okay? See, Jesus in his second nature, humanity, willingly submitted to his Father's will, not coercively, but by choice. In verse 20, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. This is a very unusual statement that is made by Jesus here, but it points to the fact that he has divine knowledge. Remember, if God came into the world, took on a second nature, and has, again, divine nature, he also has divine knowledge. God, in his being, in his essence as a spirit, it had, does not have a separation or knowledge as a part of his being. It is who he is. If he's divine in nature, he's eternal in nature, he's divine in knowledge, and his knowledge is omniscient. He's all-knowing. So that's what we're seeing here from verses 19 to verses 20. Now, perhaps this is a little insightful. Verses 19 and 20 refer to Jesus' childhood somewhat. As he watched his stepdad, Joseph, build things as a carpenter, perhaps Jesus was was using that as a way of building from, as he built from his earthly relationship with his father, he also was trying to explain his heavenly relationship with his father. So that's insightful because we can never, as we talk about his, about his divine nature, we also have to respect the human nature because he's the God-man. He is fully God and fully man. Now, a commentary says three things here are clear. One, the personal distinctions in the Godhead, which we're seeing. Number two, the unity of action among the persons results from the unity of nature. And number three, their oneness of interest as no unconscious or involuntary thing, but a thing of glorious consciousness, will, and love of which the persons themselves are the proper objects. Well said. Now we jump to verse 20. Greater works than these will he show him. And then he also says in verses 21 and 22, so also the son gives life to whom he will and all judgment is given to the son. Man, Jesus is just laying out his claim to fame, if you will. John provides further insight of Jesus giving eternal life that only comes from Christ in verses 25 through 29. So make note of that. But this statement now, he says in verse 22, all judgment is given to the son. See, Yahweh was the judge of all people in the Old Testament, Isaiah 41.1, Jeremiah 25. Look it up. Now, here you see Jesus on the Passover, who just healed a man, broke the Sabbath, supposedly by the, the religious leaders. The Messiah, the role has been placed on him. Christ will judge the earth and seek justice and establish righteousness, according to Isaiah 16. Then, he says in verse 23, all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. For Jesus to claim to have power to raise the dead was a blasphemous thing in the eyes of the Jewish leaders. They gave that power to God alone. They said that Jehovah held three great keys. Number one, the key to open heavens and give rain, Deuteronomy 28, 12. Secondly, to, the, the other key, to open the womb and give conception, Genesis 30, 22. Thirdly, the third key, to open the grave and raise the dead, Ezekiel 37, 13. So as far as the gospel records, as we're going through the chronological teachings of Jesus, we haven't seen Jesus raise someone from the dead yet. We've seen many healings and casting out demons and claiming himself to be God. But up to this point, 
there's been no resurrection. So it's an interesting claim that Jesus makes in opposition to the religious leaders. Now, verse 29 says, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. You see, there will come a day when there will be a universal resurrection according to Daniel 12, 1 through 2. Let me read that. It says in Daniel 12, verse 1, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there will be a time of trouble such as never has been seen. There was a nation till that time, but at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name will be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, this term resurrection refers to Jewish beliefs on the resurrection. Okay, it's rooted in Old Testament passages such as Isaiah 26, 19, Ezekiel 37, 1 through 10, Hosea 6, 2, as I just mentioned in Daniel 12, 2 through 3. You can now compare this to Jesus' teaching later on in John eleven twenty four, and also the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 52. Now, the various Jewish sects in the first century had conflicting beliefs on the concept of the resurrection that we see in Matthew 22, 23, and later in the church in Acts 23, 6 through 9. But when you and I look at the totality of Scripture in the New Testament, from what Jesus is saying here to the completion of the book of Revelation, there is a first resurrection that will occur at the rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 17, and 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 58. And now at the second coming of Christ for the tribulational saints at the end of the seven years, okay? That's the second one. Now for the condemned... They will receive, as we're told in Daniel chapter 12, they will not receive eternal life. They will receive their final death at the end of the millennial kingdom. This is according to Revelation 20, 11 through 15 at the great white throne judgment. They will not go to heaven. They will go to hell for all eternity. So the reason I break that down, my friends, and kind of going a little bit more in detail in this podcast is because this is an extraordinary passage of what Jesus is making claim to. And I think it's important that we understand not just contextually in John 5, what Jesus is saying of who he is, but looking again, as I mentioned, the totality of scripture to just see it, not just in context, not just having a biblical understanding, but to able to articulate what we as Christians believe theologically. So that's why I give you kind of the breakdown of the resurrection from what Jesus is saying here in John 5, all the way to Revelation 20. Now, the last things I want to touch on real quick as we end the podcast today on Stand Strong in the Word is in verse 30. He says, my judgment is just. In verses 30 through 47, Jesus gives one final appeal to the religious leaders, okay, to verify his divine authority, claiming himself to be God. Let me break it down real quick. Number, number one, when we look in verse 30, he says, the will of him who sent me. So God's will was for Jesus to be there. Number two, John bore witness of me, he says in verse 33. Number three, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, verse 36. Number four, the works the Father has sent me to do, verse 36 again. Number five, the Father has borne witness about me, verse 37. Not just John the Baptist, but now the Father bears witness to him. In six, he now invokes the scriptures, right? The Jewish scriptures, Old Testament, if you will, that bear witness about me, verse 39. Verse, and then number seven, I have come in my Father's name. Not just that he's borne witness of me and he has sent me to do his will, but I come in his name equal to Father, to the Father, he's saying, verse 43. And finally, number eight, if you believe me, Jesus says, if you, or excuse me, if you believed Moses, you would also believe in me, for he wrote of me. So that's Jesus breaking down that he is the Son of God. So my friends, I just pray that as you and I look at the, this, test of, the, this um, claim that Jesus makes to be God, that this is a great uh, testimony of 
Jesus is not just his teachings, but how he opposed the religious leaders and how he overcame them, even in, in great opposition. So you may be ashamed at times of who Jesus is. You may be afraid to claim that you are a Christian. Jesus was not fearful to claim himself to be God. And we see many of, of Jesus's followers who are not afraid to claim that they are not just a follower of Christ, but they would do whatever he has called them to do. And I just pray that you'd be able to defend the deity of Jesus Christ as a Christian. But not only that, but I do pray that you'll continue to share about God's good graces to those around you. Love you guys. Thank you for listening. I will see you on the next podcast. For more information on Jason Jimenez and Stand Strong Ministries, visit us at standstrongministries.org. Thank you for listening and keep standing strong in the Word of God.